This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning everybody and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. It's Dr Shane here. We are live and there seems to be a bit of a problem with the audio. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Uh, sort of. It does sound funny. We can, but we knew you were going to speak. It's kind of not a good test. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll pretend. Okay. I think it's just my headphones that have gone off, but it's all good. We are going to give you an hour of science today, folks. It is um, it's one of those days where we're trying out something kind of new. Usually we have guests in for you, but today we are going to just do news, and that is all. So um, We're excited. Yeah, do you want to take it away? Well, hang on. Ah, there we go. We can you guys hear, can hear you. Me now? Our illustrious leader is back. Oof. Oh, it's Pretty amazing what happens leave. when the party shows in here and they start pushing buttons. <laughs> you just made my mother's day. I know. I was like in a cave. <laughs> made your mother's what? <laughs> uh, it's like I was in a cave there for a while. Okay, folks, let's start again. Caves. I'm uh, talking about caves. Yeah. Perfect segue. Oh, cool. Uh, well, hang on. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. It's three to blah. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Shane, and I think we're caught up. In the studio with me, though, is Dr. Jen, good morning. Good morning. You well? Uh, yeah, really Happy well. Mother's Day, woman. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty nice day to be a mum, really. Did the guy next to you, Dr. Ewan, here cook you a nice breakfast? Yeah, he did, actually. We went running, we had breakfast. I must admit, I haven't actually seen my children yet this morning, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably not the best thing to say about this day. <laughs> they were having a sleepover. Security. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's right. a lovely Mother's Day, thank you. Excellent. And also Excellent. thoughts to all the women out there who, you know, wish they were mums, can't be mums, are trying to be mums. I think it's a tough day for a lot of women. So. You're about two seconds ahead of me there because well it's said. something we, yeah. we say every year. And uh, for those who've lost their mums and so forth as well. Exactly. So these, these, these commercial days can yeah. be very hurtful. I but, agree. But, but for, the, you know, those who want to celebrate them, fantastic. And otherwise we'll just be mindful. Exactly. Dr. Ewan, speaking of mindful... I try. <laughs> wow. How are you, Phil? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm just discombobulated, discombobulated now after that little minor technical hitch. Getting it back so on good. track. Yeah, we're good, though. And uh, speaking of discombobulated, <laughs> I think it's a mindless. great segue to you. I'm going I'm to take that as a, as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, so, folks, we've got an hour of news for you today. We thought we would try something today. We normally reserve just for the Radiothon show, but today we I managed to get these three to do a bit of extra homework because it's a lot of extra work actually when someone says to you, hey, instead of doing one news story, you're going to do about three or four and fill up the whole hour. So, Dr. Jim, yeah, we're going to... we revel in that challenge, don't oh, yeah. we, team? We just love this. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> these yeah, two are looking Chris... at you like you lost your mind. Yeah, just, uh, it's Mother's Day, folks. Just... Grin, yeah, grin. just go with it. Yeah, yeah. Smile away. away. Smile away. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll we'll start with you, Dr. Jean. What do you got for us? <clears throat> I'm feeling kind of a little bit uh, put out now, boys. Mm. But anyway, no. I thought we could talk about caves. You talked about cave before. Yeah. And I think a lot of our listeners will have heard some very exciting news that came out this week about a discovery in a cave in South Africa. Now, the actual discovery was a whole lot of really superbly um, preserved bones from about 15 different individuals of an early human, and they were actually discovered a while ago now. So the the fossils themselves,
cells were discovered in 2013 and they were published in 2015. So they came from a um, group of caves in a World Heritage Site just north of Johannesburg. And the World Heritage Site is called the Cradle of Humankind. Mm, I like that. I really like that. Anyway, so in 2015 they came out and said, wow, we found this new species of early human. And they called it Homo nadelli. No, naledi. I always get the D and the L confused. Mm. Naledi. Anyway, and a really interesting early human because it's got this unusual mix of very modern and very prehistoric features. So on the one hand, it definitely walked upright. It's got teeth that look quite modern. Um, the feet and the wrist and the thumb and the jaw, all these things look quite modern. But at the same time, it's got quite a flat face and a really small brain. Mm. The brain about the size of a gorilla. So you're thinking kind of mm. orange-sized. And also very curved fingers, which suggested that it was quite well um, adapted for swinging through trees. Mm. So this really weird mix. And the hard, part of the exciting news was it was really, really hard to find them because to get into these caves, you had to be able to squeeze through um, a little tiny space oh. that was only 19 centimetres yeah, wide. Yeah, me yeah. neither. You can have that. Yeah. So, so a lot of um, it's like it's like a really, really long MRI machine. The convenience, <laughs> yeah, just, my, the convenient thing for me is that um, that's no longer an option anyway, for reasons of <laughs> no uh, <laughs> physicality. It would have been a long time ago. Reasons of yeah. girth. Pretty much. Um, yeah. Yes, I'm no longer girthed by stone. Horizontally challenged. But, um, but it was a great part of the story because the, the most of the researchers were completely unable to enter these cave systems. So they had to pull out, put out a call to people who were both extremely experienced paleontologists because these were such precious finds yes. but were small enough to get through the gap. And so it ended up that six early career female scientists yep. were part of the team that got invited to go in. Did they get, no one else could did they get, get paid in. extra for that because they had specialist skills? Oh, I don't I'm know. just thinking early career researchers can easily get ripped <laughs> off. But this is a situation where it's like, no, we really specifically need you. Yeah, it's a skill set that should, should demand a... Uh, were, were they, did they have to, like, you know, vomit up their food and that for three weeks and stuff like that? Well, they, I don't know. The, the main researcher like said he but, tried to get in there once and he got stuck, so he never... You know, like, who there? So he never went back. Oh, no. Jockey's easy to go. That's but, what you um, want. But a friend, of, uh, a friend of you and of mine up who's at JCU up in Townsville... Um, Carl Spandler, he, he's male, but he's small enough that he was actually able to go into these caves and help get these. 19 centimetres. I still can't fathom that. And it's not just one thing. It's a Mm. long chamber that's that small. (laughs) But anyway, okay, so getting back. So they got these fossils. And at the time, the head paleontologist said, look, based on these, these features, it must be about, this species must be about a million to two million years. That must have been when it lived, about a million to two million years ago. But this week, what they finally published is the result of the dating study. So imagine mm. this, you've got all these fossils, it's this weird mix of, of features. You don't know when it when it lived. They sent it out to 10 different labs, used six different techniques, they did it all double blind, so, you know, the best they could possibly do, best practice to get the right date. And drumroll, guess how old this species is? Mm. Really young. Ooh. So the dating mm. comes back as only... Let me find my notes. Where are my notes? I can't find it. 236,000 oh, wow. to 335,000 years ago. So that means overlap with our... Uh, modern yes, humans. it certainly does. So at the same time as Neanderthals were in Europe, at the same time as modern humans were evolving in Africa, this incredibly primitive species was doing its thing. So it tells us that, you know, that kind of standard picture of this mm. constant evolution yeah. from yeah, chimp yeah, yeah, yeah. to eventually this upright human, it's not true. The fossil mm, yeah. record is way more complicated than that. And we're not 
the pinnacle of everything that's ever happened. We're just what happened to survive mm. with this great mix of different mm. species doing different things. So the researchers said, look, we don't know. Maybe they're responsible for some of the tools in Africa. Maybe it wasn't some of, maybe it wasn't modern humans. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that all of these bones were found in caves without animal remains, so they're saying, well, maybe they were so modern that actually they buried their, buried their, um, they're dead. They're dead, yeah, wow. which is that yeah. what we've assumed has only ever been done by very modern species. And it's possible, you know, some of these other species might have been wiped out by a geological isolation, you know, yep. so, you know, there, there may have been something that, that just affected them and, exactly. and other species were more spread. And were they able to ride dinosaurs as well, like us? <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. What yeah. else? <laughs> that's how they got to school. You're a bad man. <laughs> you know? this, is, this is a science show, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Hey, yeah, sorry. That's the other show I do. <laughs> the religious hour. Yes. So, um, so, look, it's just amazing because it totally turns on its head what we've always assumed mm. about how important and special we are. Oh, because yeah. actually, you know, there was something around at the same time as us that we think of as being mm. very primitive, mm. and they obviously were doing fine. So. I've still got two things stuck in my head. One is the, the poor dude who was stuck. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> no, my real question is, go forward or come back? Did they, did they push or pull? You know, how they get him out? I don't know. And the second is an apology to all jockeys because Ewan did make a comment there about using <laughs> no, jockeys. And, and they're not paleontologists, dude. They're good with horses, and but not with bones. Else. <laughs> but if it physically, they would be able to do that job. But if it's that small, no, no, one, you, you, no one can ride a horse through there either, surely. That's just um, <laughs> illogical. Pony, maybe. But then, yeah, that was the thing. It couldn't just be small. You had to yeah. be a qualified paleontologist who could look after could these you, incredibly precious Could bones. you maybe just get a very small person... Who, you know, from anywhere, put them through and then train them, you know, like, you know, it's, I don't know, I'm thinking just uh, like online, sort of as, as, <laughs> as a correspondence student inside the cave. But why do that if there's already people out there with both? If both there is. Yes. Well, there were. They did you it by just social media. They a camera on their head and they said, yeah, brush there, brush there, brush there. <laughs> That's, yep. Exactly. No, they put the call out on social media and they had a hundred suitably qualified respondents within a week and he chose the six most qualified who just happened wow. to all be makes women. Me, makes me wonder if, you know, if there is in fact a, an unusually high subset of small people in the paleontological, you know, vocation. Ah, is, that, is that a thing? That's interesting. We better yeah. move on. Man, so <laughs> before we get in trouble. Don't do work experience with Chris. <laughs> <laughs> One of many reasons. <laughs> anyone, anyone willing to climb through a 19-millimeter <laughs> extended hole to dig up an old bone. That's... Com- that's re- you should... Hang on. Commitment or committed? It's one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> one of the two. I say commitment. Commitment. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. Now, Dr. Ewan, what do you got for us? Well, nice segue with preservation. Oh, okay, um, you're going to say Chris, dog jockeys. Are you going to do an intro for me here or...? <laughs> for those of you confused, that's the Ghostbusters <laughs> thing. Ghostbusters. That's what you want, right? Yeah, that's okay. that's pretty good. It's certainly a lot better than I could have done. So I couldn't go past this story. And uh, combining Hi, dinosaurs, which, of course, Shane just mentioned before, which yeah. didn't coincide with humans, just to point that out, <laughs> in case there was any confusion there. Such a shame. <laughs> and Ghostbusters. And so there's been a recent discovery of a fossil dinosaur and this story is remarkable um for a couple of reasons uh first of all um the preservation of this animal um which is immaculate so obviously most of the time when we find dinosaurs and fossils in general you just find bits um and then of course you have to put them together and try and work out which part it is and they're often in not great condition and so you can't learn as much as you can of course when you have a relatively complete um organism or animal and so this animal was incredibly good condition so there's soft tissue there and there's skin impressions and so forth um, and this is an um, ankylosaur, if I pronounce that correctly. Yeah, ankylosaur. Yeah. Good job. 
Thank you. Yeah. I still remember back from when, when my son was obsessed with dinosaurs. That's <laughs> yeah. um, what we all know about dinosaurs. <laughs> and uh, this was about 75 million years ago, so the Cretaceous period. It was discovered in Montana. And I should say this was reported in the Journal of Royal Society's Open Science, Arbor and Evans are the authors. And so this is an animal about six metres long. Two and a half thousand uh, kilograms. So to put that in perspective, about white rhino size. Mm. It's a very, That's very a large unit. animal. Yeah. Perfect for riding to school. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And you know what? Thanks, Wilma. And yeah, <laughs> 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 never, never don't. And, and no one would bother you if you were riding this thing too, because <laughs> it's heavily armoured. So right. ankylosaurs, for those who know, they're yeah. dinosaurs. These things are like trucks, and they are built. So have they got the whacking tail? They have the, the whacking tail. I love the whacking oh, tail. So the story gets better. So yeah. so yeah, they're, they're armour plated <laughs> from head to toe, two and a half thousand kilos. Um, about six metres long, and they have this club on the end of their tail, which yep. is covered in spikes. And so they've called it Zool, for those who know Ghostbusters, uh-huh. yeah. which was the kind of demigod-like yeah. thing that was going to unleash hell on the city of New yeah. York. Dominion of Gozer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's watched too much and, TV. And so That's if you great. look at this this ankylosaur and Zool, they have a superficially similar-looking face. And so that's why they call it Zool. But the scientific name is Zool, and it's Vastata. And the, the species part of that scientific name actually means destroyer of shins. <laughs> How awesome is that? Yeah, that yeah, relates to this club. Yeah. So basically, if you're, a, a, let's say you're a T-Rex or something, you think, I'm going to have a bit of ankylosaur today, and you walk up to that, and then it just takes one big swing with its tail and smashes your legs to pieces. I think the um, the modern equivalent is the tow bar. Yes, <laughs> I could not agree Sorry. more. I have done that injury many times myself. <laughs> but I, 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 was, I mean, I don't know if there's an answer to this. I mean, there's clearly not an answer to it. But I find it intriguing that you get an animal that's however big it is, or firstly it gets to be that size, yeah. but then for via whatever circumstance or changing conditions, it needed to get armoured, grow yeah. a club, you know, mm. Yeah, attach it with bum, and then put spikes <laughs> on that club. That's mm. how awful was life where that was the kind of feature that became dominant. I think the yeah, short answer is it was really awful. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's uh, Ghostbusters and wow. dinosaurs. It's, it's nice. incredible stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I agree. When when you look at some of the old dinosaurs, just, uh, like Spinosaurus, for example, yep. you know, with these sail fins and so yep. forth for distribution of heat. Yes. Yep. Uh, you, like, you th- <laughs> when, when did you? Evolve that. Like, well, how, yeah, what, you what, know, other, what other species were there that didn't quite cut yeah. because they didn't have a big enough spiky club hanging off their backside? Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, it's it's, wow. it's very cool stuff. When, when we make the TARDIS, I just hope it's armor plated as well. Oh so, yes, yeah. that would be a very good <laughs> idea. Yes. Or you just step out in a very cautious <laughs> <Quickly>. way, <laughs> yeah. take a photo, get back in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those famous selfies that it was just before someone could yeah. hit the head with a spiky club. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Chris, what do you got? Uh, I I was intrigued uh, to find a story about a connection between uh, chronic pain and sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. and. Which is an interesting thing in itself because, you know, I immediately thought, yeah, when I'm overtired, you get a bit sensitive, but that's not the same as chronic pain. But I, I was really interested in how they've done this. And the actual study is using a mouse model. So pause a moment. If I was going to study anyone in this studio and find out, you know, <laughs> what your, how your pain changed or perception of pain changed based on sleep deprivation, the first thing I've got to do is stop you sleeping. Yeah. So how do I stop someone sleeping? Have kids. That will do it. It's quite a long lead time. Um, The first part of that program is great. Um, 
Any other thoughts? Threaten them with a, with an anky tail. You know, so, if you fall asleep, just, I'll, I'll whip you with this. Or indeed hit them when they do fall asleep. That's That'll right. stop them. Yeah. So this, um, that was just like... Just keep slapping them every well, half yeah, hour. I was going to say. I'm thinking you've got mice. So basically, as soon as they're falling asleep, you've got to flick them or do something to wake right, them up. Right, okay. So firstly, they gave, they gave them all little EGs on their heads. So they yep. could tell, you know, without waiting for them to curl up and go to sleep, they could see they're getting sleepy, they're going to go to sleep before it happened. But then they went the total other opposite. Because if you think about, okay, kids aside, most of the things in your adult life that have stopped you sleeping aren't bad things. They're good things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically what they did is they, the two things that mice love, mice love to nest and mice love to chew on stuff. And so <laughs> as soon as I started getting sleep, they'd give them some more cotton wool or a bit of straw and they'd just impulsively start nesting again or something sort of t- chewy and tough that they could just nibble on and they would basically stop sleeping to do all these cool things <laughs> that they couldn't stop themselves yeah. doing. So that was, that was the first thing, yeah. So I'm just thinking how you would do this with humans. De- death by pleasure. I was going to say the exact same stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mean come on. Nesting, Food, Jane. nesting. Who hasn't got home at three in the morning, sat down and, and put rage on and gone, I'll just watch one more song. <laughs> and just one more song. Not since 992. Well, but yeah. <laughs> some of us had not aged as fast as you. Yeah. Don't admit that, Shane. Yeah, oh, well, that's, that's sad in time. Anyway, yeah, so that's that. Um, that, uh, that so they kept them awake doing that, and they could tell they were awake or how awake they were, but then it's, then they sort of gave them situations, you know, they'd increase the temperature or they'd, they'd put some food out with a bit of extra hot chilli on it or whatever, and they'd see, okay, at what point did these mice start going, oh, it's too hot over there, I'm going to go over here, and they, they'd test mm-hmm. all that out. And so, and yes, they found that their, their sense of pain was essentially much more sensitive when they were, when they were overtired, when they hadn't slept very much. Mm-hmm. But then that prompts the question, so what does that tell you about pain relief? Mm-hmm. And they found that in situations where the pain was increased as a result of lack of sleep, um, you know, your standard painkillers, analgesics, the ibuprofens, etc., didn't really do that much. Okay. On the contrary, caffeine was pretty good. <laughs> the right? stuff that actually improves wakefulness, those were the kinds of drugs that were actually like to reduce the pain in that situation. Now, it's a particular reason to have pain, so don't please don't knock off yeah, the, a couple of coffees because you've got a sore in, toe. This is in mice. And it's in mice. So let's just, <laughs> there's a few step back, yeah, step yeah. back here from reality. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting that they had an idea, crafted a really quite an elegant experiment to do mm. it, and had one extremely interesting result, uh, I thought, at the end, which is really about the, um, the, the biochemical side of it as opposed to the sleep side of it. Mm. Mm, interesting yeah, stuff. Interesting. Well, I, I've been, you know, for a while we've been talking about this idea of um, combating things like dengue and, and various other mosquito-borne diseases by the idea of changing the mosquitoes or doing things to the mosquito population. And this, for me, I mean, I'm not a biology person, but from the physics perspective, for me, this is the equivalent of geoengineering to solve climate change. Mm. It's kind of tweaking one piece of the ecosystem and hoping like hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to use it to Cane toad, but hoping like that, <laughs> nothing go goes astray. And, and and there are deep concerns about this, especially the idea of, um, well, t- two ways it's sort of being looked at at the moment. One is the idea of genetically modifying mosquitoes um, and then feeding them into the population of mosquitoes so that they pass on those new right. genes yeah. and they simply cannot carry some of these um, mm. parasitic um, diseases. And this, you know, this sounds okay, but it's like, ooh, you know, you're starting to mess with nature mm. a little bit. This is uh, concerning. And the second one is um, this idea of this Wolbachia bacteria that people have been modifying and putting into the mosquitoes that uh, has has a similar effect, basically. It, what it means is if a mosquito is carrying this bacteria, 
and something like dengue, you know, gets into the mosquito, it can't, it can't compete with the bacteria, so it, it dies out and it doesn't get transmitted. Now, that all sounds like a perfect solution, except for the fact that, of course, sooner or later, um, we will see an evolution that will mean that this no longer works, and this, mm. and, and we'll probably have something worse as a result. So, and I think everyone's a bit concerned about that. So, there's some, you know, there's some, you know, happy little researchers who are working on this and thinking it's a good way to go, but as I say, for me, this sounds a bit like geoengineering. It's like putting, you know, massive mirrors in space or or let's fill the the atmosphere of sulfur or you know whatever else mm. and not mm. worry about ocean acidification but just worry about one part yes. of the problem anyway there's a group um that are working on a, a new technique that's being trialed in florida which is quite quite interesting actually where they're also using the wolbachia bacteria but they're using it in a slightly different way so the strain that they're using um they're, they're if you infect a male with this strain, all it means is that when they breed with the female, the offspring die. They don't, they don't continue. So it's actually more a control of numbers scenario as opposed to, you know, you can still get dengue from these mosquitoes, no problem whatsoever. But there's just not many of them because mm. they're kind of knocking part the of the species out. the population should get smaller and smaller. Population should get smaller. And so, but it's, it's a bit, it's a little counterintuitive because the way they've been doing it is they've chosen these 20 sites that are not far apart in, in Florida and essentially have released 40,000 male mosquitoes at these 20 sites. So they have these little containers mm-hmm. and they open them up and... Little blow of air and they all fly out. It's <laughs> 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 probably louder than that. <laughs> That's very good, Chris. Sorry. Jeez, uh, I mean, you're talented. Um, <laughs> talented. <laughs> talented. <laughs> anyway, they've been running this 12, uh, 12 week test and the idea is uh, they're trying to displace the, the natural male population with this male population that has this bacteria on there. And all it means is that these guys won't have kids, mm. right? And so they'll reduce the load of mosquitoes over time. Initially, of course, they're increasing it. There's 40,000 more mosquitoes being, you know, if you lived in the area, you might want to put up some screen. <laughs> <laughs> However, of course, those among us who know anything about mosquitoes know it's the females that bite. Indeed. So you don't really have a problem with extra males being around, um, unless, of course, they go to breed. But, of course, these ones can't breed. So the thing I like about this is that it's one of those areas where they have actually thought a lot more about the issue of potential negative effects of what could go wrong but, here. But if they, let's say this works, right, mm. and let's say that it just eventually over however many generations wipes out the mosquito population, do they not have some other role to play in the ecosystem? Well, I think, I think the thing is, is these guys aren't talking about wiping it out. They're just talking about reducing it. And because, in fact, it would pretty much be impossible to to wipe it out in this way. You you would always have some natural yes, um, sure. males around. I mean, because you're not going out and killing the natural males. You're just saying, well, you know, for every one natural male in this area, there's two of these ones. So then they'd also have to make sure that, that however many, they, whatever that balance was, mm. they need to make sure that they had that the ones they were introducing were attractive enough, exactly. but not too attractive. Oh, yes. yeah, these guys, they, look, they no, these guys look good. They're, yeah, they're, they're do good. they? Oh, they're good-looking mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some mosquitoes in my time, and these ones. As Shane furtively lifts the net. Oh, <laughs> you know, a couple of drinks, I might take a shot. Um, they're pretty good. So, anyway, it's an interesting. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting way to go about this because I think it does really tick the boxes of a lot of concerns that people have had mm. over the way in which people have gone about this. Because I have to say, when I first heard, it was probably ten years ago now, when I first heard about this idea mm. of releasing genetically modified mosquitoes, I just thought what the mm. earth are you thinking have we not made this mistake 
many times before. Um, but it's, you know, the research is going ahead. So anyway, there's round one of the news. We're going to post Woo-hoo! it. Yeah, we got through. Yeah, no one was insulted. I don't think a couple of jockeys in there, but otherwise we're okay. <laughs> uh, Just like anything, worry about them. Yeah, that'll be fine. I think everyone's just more concerned about your interest in mosquitoes, Shane. <laughs> yes, yeah. I love a good mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a break, folks. We'll be back in just a moment. We've got heaps more for you. Hang in there. You're listening to Three Triple R. Three Triple R. There you are listening to Three Triple R. It's Einstein and Go Go. It's an hour of science, folks. I'm Dr. Shane, and the team today with me is doing uh, just news. We uh, couldn't be bothered getting any yes. Well, I couldn't. No, actually, we thought we'd do something different. We do this for the radiothon, and it's a lot of fun. And there's always so much news that we have to leave out of the show. So this yeah. week, we thought we would chuck in some more for you, Dr. Jen. Round two. What do you got? Round two. I want to talk music this time. I want to talk about Stradivarius string ah, instruments, yes. which I'm sure everybody's heard of. Mm. So, um, and no one can afford. Yeah, well, we should one. Right. But you may not need to, though. No, exactly. Oh, hello. So these are stringed instruments made by the Italian family Stradivari in the 17th and 18th centuries, particularly by Antonio Stradivari. And it's interesting because the term Stradivari has now just been turned into kind of a general superlative. You know, basically Stradivari yes. is just the best of the best. You know, it means you can't be any better. And and the story goes that the sounds coming out of these violins and violas and cellos, you know, cannot be matched. They we we can't understand how they're so good but we've never been able to match this sound and there's been all sorts of suggestions that it comes because you know the wood um, grew in in the northern forests of Croatia where it's so cold that the that the tree growth is so slow that the wood is particularly dense or it's the chemicals in the varnish and there's been all these discussions. I'm sure whatever the explanation it can't be (laughs) Done again. That's, <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. oh, no, no. exactly. Oh, you can't grow that anymore. That tree's extinct. Climate yeah, change yeah. should be something. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, so there's about 650 of these original instruments still in existence. And yes, hugely pricey. Mm. So in 2011, one particular violin sold for 15.9 million US dollars, which is crazy for Ouch. a violin. Yeah. yeah. Well, imagine if you lost it. Well, you dropped it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, so there's been, in fact, so there's all this, you know, incredible reputation and this amazing story that goes with these instruments. Yet, starting in 1817, there's actually been lots of studies to show that listeners can't tell apart <laughs> the sound Surprise. coming out of the The old wine industry has a friend. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So, you know, all of these studies to show that listeners can't tell them apart from any other, I mean, a, you know, another good quality violin. We're not talking your $20 Suzuki violin from the corner store. Oh, but. No, nothing wrong with the Suzuki products, though. No, no, that's true. Can I ask a quick question, too? I, no, would, sorry. I, I would assume that the people who play those instruments are your typically best violin players as well. Of course. So yeah. there's yeah. a bit of a confounding factor there. But they, that's can, what, they can get more out of it? But yeah. that's yeah. what some of these studies have been about. So then there's been a whole number of studies where they've got elite violin players to um, play both. So yeah. modern, modern, very good quality violins compared to Stradivarius violins. And again, people can't tell them apart. Mm. So you kind of think, oh, this is very interesting. But um, there's the, the latest study that just came out this week. One argument is that the reason why people love Stradivarius violins so much is because for the player, the sound isn't very loud. So right next to your ear, it's not very loud, but that the sound can 
carries absolutely beautifully and that's why people like them so much. So in this particular study, they got elite violin players to play outdoors in the suburbs of both Paris and New York. <laughs> Most expensive buskers ever. Seriously. And they got the, the violinists to wear modified welding goggles while they played so they couldn't tell whether they were playing a Stradivarius or whether they were How playing a modern violin. Can you oh, imagine? That's challenging. Yeah playing out there in the wilds of New York with, with welding goggles <laughs> on. But anyway, and then they asked lots of listeners to, to report back on, on how they heard these sounds. Um, and it turned out that the modern violins actually carried better. The sound mm. carried better than the Stradivarius did. Um, and most of the listeners preferred the sound of the mm. modern violins over the Stradivarius. Mm. And the players were just as happy playing the modern violins. We're assuming that the goggles made no difference to the sound. We are assuming that. <laughs> so it's a good, it's a good news story for, for, um, musicians. So it means instead of paying 15.9 million, I mean, it, a good violin is still expensive. You're looking at about mm. 130,000, mm. but I'd rather pay 130,000 than yeah, 15 million yeah. if I wanted to get a good violin. You can get welding goggles for about, you know, $15 from, from Bunnings. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> you wonder how much, you know, I, I hear these things and I, these experiments are always a bit tainted in a way because you have a modern audience yes. used to hearing modern sounds, which the discordant aspects are far reduced, like they're they're much more clean sounds because of the manufacturing tolerances are better. And whereas the older audiences who would have first started started seeing these modern violins coming in would say, well, they don't sound as warm and as rich, you know, because the the nuances, like every violin would have sounded different. Whereas now, you know, if you have 200 violins all made by the same manufacturer, to be honest, they're probably all pretty close. And just the acoustic environment that these people are playing in. I mean, can you imagine playing in the streets of New York compared to Italy in the 16th century, the 17th century? Totally different. But one of the points they made is none of these studies can really account for the placebo effect and that is if you're told you're listening to a 17th century violin worth 15 million dollars of course you think it sounds better of course you think it sounds better than something that was made last year and we can't account for that yeah no that's right so it's you know the culture is very interesting trying to think of an analogy there that won't offend half a million people but yeah (laughs) we have have half a million listeners no but you know but you only have to offend one and then they tell 10 and then they tell 10 so it, it spirals out of control pretty well, quickly. We could go viral just if, by saying something that's, really that's only about 20 people. If in doubt, say no. Well, I can tell you by the end of the hour, every jockey in the world will hate Dr. Ewan. <laughs> Either that or they'll be calling him for paleontology sort yeah, of lessons right. or something. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got for us, Ewan? I've got polar bears. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're, they're not oh, controversial not at all. Not at home, I No, hope. no, not at all. He's <laughs> got polar bears. <laughs> it's That'd awesome. Yeah. It sounds like the pox or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the polar bear pox. So, <laughs> there's a song in that, I reckon. Chris, Chris, Chris he's been looking for pox. new material. Yeah, well, I love a predator story. So, this comes out of the general animal ecology, and we know that polar bears are a sort of a poster child in some ways for climate change, and not in a good way. Uh, so, Many would be aware, of course, that the Arctic is melting at quite a rapid pace, and that is um, very problematic for a whole range of reasons, including for polar bears. So polar bears spend a lot of their time chowing down on seals. So a polar bear mm-hmm. can be anything up to and over, in fact, 450 kilograms. Mm-hmm. It's a very large animal. Yeah, huge. And they really like to eat seals because seals are basically just big piles of fat. Mm. And so they're really energy-rich. Now, of course... They stalk their prey, the, the seals, by basically walking across the ice and also by basically standing still. And they're very hard to see a lot of the time. And then they get close enough to an unsuspecting seal and jump on it and consume it. 
But the ice, of course, is melting, and so it's getting harder and harder for them to sneak up on these seals. And what some of the what some of the polar bears are now doing, particularly the males, is they jump in the water and then they swim all the way out to their little bits of ice, are sort of floating, and then try and launch onto a seal and attack it that way. Now that's still really, really hard to do and really energetically costly mm. because you've got to mm. swim all the way out, not get caught, because of course the moment the seal seals sees you, it jumps in the water and swims off. Yep. And so you swim, you know, let's say you swim a kilometre and then you get there and there's nothing there. So this study, what they've been doing is they've been looking at uh, polar bears and seals, but also how polar bears have now changed their diet. And this is where it gets really interesting. So because the polar bears can't catch seals anymore, not as easily, they've switched their attention to birds and in particular geese. So they've changed from a diet of seal to basically scrambled eggs. Now... The problem is, for polar bears, of course, that to eat enough eggs for a polar was, bear, yeah. you need to eat a lot of eggs. Yeah. And so what they did was they tracked um, 60 <coughs> seals and 60 polar bears before and after a really um, strong, I guess, melting event in 2006 in Svalbard in, in uh, Norway. And they've shown that the bears have changed their behaviour. So instead of spending a lot of time down by the coast, which is where the seals are, they've moved inland and they're now foraging on uh, birds, in particular geese. Hmm. And so when they come across these uh, areas where the geese are nesting, they can find a nest within about 30 seconds and they can consume the entire nest in 60 seconds. And when they find these populations of geese, they can absolutely hammer their populations mm-hmm. by about 90%. Wow. wow. Yeah, so there's... This is a really interesting story, of course, because in a sense it's showing that polar bears are adapting to climate change in terms of their foraging behaviour and their diet, but it could have all these negative consequences. Yeah. And and even the, the polar bears themselves, so the people studying them have found that the polar bears that are consuming these eggs have um, quite severe diarrhoea, and that's because it's a really high-protein diet and not very much fat as mm-hmm. opposed to seals. But also importantly is that by affecting the geese, there could be flow-on effects to the whole ecosystem. And this is because geese are also really important for Arctic fox, which is a mm-hmm. threatened species in many parts of the world, um, again, because of climate change and interactions with other things, including the red fox. Uh, and so if, of course, the geese run out of supply because the polar bears are eating them, that means there's no food for Arctic fox anymore. And they're also important for things like uh, reindeer because they change the vegetation mm. um, around the ecosystem. So I guess it's another classic case of how climate mm. change affecting one species and other species adapts, and then you've got this kind of flow-on cascade of effects right throughout the whole ecosystem. So and, it's, it's, and it's that, that whole, you, know, you and I have talked about this a lot, and we're going to do a show, folks, in about a month, on apex predators and it's when whenever you go after one of the apex predators the flow and effect is extraordinary because yep. it does it does travel all the way through yep. the ecosystem so i just polar bears to me are, are literally the most magnificent creatures i mean i stunning i have to say you know i saw my first one in a zoo which yep. i i hate that mm, fact yeah but um i was there with a, a group of people and it was in one of these theme parks up in queensland and this group of people we went there first and they went on and went around the theme park, and I just stayed there and looked at this thing for the next hour and a half. I'd just seen nothing like it in the world. I thought it was extraordinary, and and the idea that we might lose them is, um, is just you know it's heartbreaking. Yeah, well, they're, they, they're just magnificent creatures. Yeah, yeah, they're already hybridizing with grizzly bears too. Because oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So wow. um, we have what's called pizzlies 
or growlers. So a pizzly is a female grizzly bear and a male polar bear, mm. and the growler is the male grizzly and a female polar bear. Do they have the cutest cubs ever? <laughs> I imagine they're very cute, but yeah, you wouldn't want like to get pandas. close enough because I don't think mum would be too impressed. No. So, and, yeah. and polar bears yeah. genuinely see humans as food. As seals. So, <laughs> as seals. Slower yeah. seals. Yeah, yeah. Slower seals yeah. and cubs swim. Yeah. I guess I, I still can't get past well. what I suspect is absolutely grotesque, and that's polar bear diarrhoea. On that the just, ice. That just seems really... Yeah, especially, anywhere, but especially on, on ice. On the ice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Diary on ice. Is that a Disney thing? It just sounds... <laughs> 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 Have a great time, kids. Uh, there we go. Uh, great segue. Chris K.P., what do you got? It is, actually, because I want to talk about beauty. Um, and, <laughs> and in particular... Beauty and diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even going. That's very good. That's Jeez. Oh, I might have to use that somewhere. I'm not oh. sure we're going to do this show again. <laughs> I, I'll make sure I credit you. Um, so, okay, so um, Emmanuel Kant, way back in the 1760s, made the suggestion that um, uh, that beauty requires thought. Um, if, you, if, you, if you think something is beautiful, you need to actually, you can't just, it's not instantaneous. And in mm. fact, he went further and said that sensuous pleasure is not, can never be beautiful because it doesn't require mm. thought. So there was, there was this... Yeah, was I'm thinking really hard now, but you're not going? becoming... Uh, no, it's just not working. Not working? No. Just go back to thinking about mosquitoes. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> you stay on that side of the desk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> a bunch of scientists did a very interesting and very good uh, experiment, I thought a very interesting experiment, where they would basically show you beautiful and non-beautiful things, like nominally beautiful and non-beautiful, um, and then distract you to see whether you could still recognise the difference. What I love about this most is um, the way they distracted you. So essentially you have to hear a series of letters, just random letters from the alphabet, and if you hear the same letter or a letter that was also there two letters ago, you've got to push a button. So A, G, X, Y, B, C, D, and you just get to go, oh, there it goes, which is extremely distracting. I love Mm. that. Mm. and what they found is that it's true that basically the things that people that said were not beautiful without distraction, they were still pretty much not beautiful. That stood, that worked out. But the beautiful things became markedly less. People saw less beauty in wow. stuff because they were distracted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, of course, cool. seeing things is only one kind of beauty. There are in fact there is in fact the sensual beauty. And yes, they studied that too. So they, they gave people candy to eat, uh, and they could touch teddy bears made of different things, um, you know, in order to see whether or not that was the case too. And interestingly, they found that when people were distracted, most people, um, had the same, the same impacts, like, yeah, that was just, you know, that was whatever, it wasn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't experience beauty, if you like. It might have been pleasurable without being beautiful, but about a third of the people actually got strong enough pleasure from the candy or the teddy bears to say, yes, that was beautiful. <laughs> um, I don't know what they're <laughs> into, but, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, so, in fact, yes, which, which basically disproves Kant's suggestion that, uh, that sensuous pleasure cannot be beautiful if you accept that level of, of assessment. So mm-hmm. you can, it's, even that was able to break its way through the, uh, the distraction barrier. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I love those distraction things. I once mm. had this, uh, this test for balance. And when they do it, they spin you. And to distract, <laughs> that's not helping. To di- well, to distract oh. you, they have to remove your balance first. Yes, yes, yes. And to distract you, they ask you to count. And 
you have to count backwards from 500. No, I was doing that. And, and the, the sort of person doing the test said, this doesn't seem to be working. I said, well, <laughs> well, counting backwards by, by ones is not distracting for me. Yes. You know, yeah. Mathematics guy. Yes. And so I'll count by threes and we did it again. Didn't work. By this stage, I was going to be queasy. I was spinning for a while. <laughs> and in the end, in the end we, we, we came to the fact that for me, counting backwards, um, by 13 or something was bloody distracting and yes. annoying. And I was ready to throw up by this point. It was like, we, we should have started. There, man. Anyway, it was uh, nice. Now, uh, some oh, some bad news, folks. And I'm not sure you and he likes it when money's not spent on the space program. They were thinking it goes to the environment. So, it could be. <laughs> but um, NASA has announced that uh, their planned um, sort of uh, early test flights of the Orion capsule on the SLS are going to be delayed down until 2019. I'm not getting any younger, and if they don't get to Mars soon, I'm not going to bloody see it. Um, but this is uh, this has been done. Apparently, uh, the decision's been made, and I say this carefully, in collaboration with the White House. Uh-oh. Oh, I'm not sure what that means. Um, Nothing good, I can but understand. But basically, in addition to that, they had uh, this this first test flight, uh, EM1, as it was designated. They were also thinking of making it a humaned um, flight, um, but uh, now they're only going to put a crew on the second test mission, which is planned for approximately, and I say approximately with a very big set of capital letters, August 2021 at the earliest. That's a long time away. Mm, that is. Really? Yeah, it is. So I'm going to put my money on the Elon Musk now. Um, come on, <laughs> get us there because this is going to take a while. So anyway, it's um, look, there's a lot of detail to be done here. Um, do you know the planned Mars exploration is only expected to cost a mere, and you and you're going to love this. It's only going to cost <laughs> thirty three billion. That does sound cheap, actually. Seriously. By the year 2033, an estimated. And, I I mean, that's got to be about the same cost of the US election, right? I mean, how much that that must have funneled away a fair bit of money. Um, It actually doesn't seem that much to me by comparison to to other things. I mean, I'll take it. Don't get me wrong. It it seems like not very much for what is Compared to other crap that we spend money on. No arguments there. Yeah, so... And I know it would be good to put that all towards the environment, but I'm just saying I think it's good to strive for these things as well. But, yeah, that keeps getting put off. I've got this book that I bought in about 1975 that said, real soon. <laughs> Bastards. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Sue them for $33 million. <laughs> yeah. Well, it would be nice if we got to walk around on another planet soon, but um, it might have to be a one-way trip. I'm all for that too. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all for you doing that. I've got a list of people I'd put their names <laughs> forward right now. I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> Chris uh, We're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with some more news. You're listening to Triple R. Three. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. We are in the last 10 minutes of the show. We still have some news to get out there. Dr. Jen, what have you got for us? I want to talk about national parks and the fact that mm. we tend to think of national parks as being these lovely, peaceful places that don't suffer too much from human encroachment and where animals can, you know, go about their daily lives doing what they want to do. And obviously we hope that they're good places for in terms of protecting biodiversity. But a paper came out in Science this week where... Some researchers looked at a type of pollution that we don't often think very much about, and that's noise pollution. Mm. So they um, basically wanted to map sound levels across a whole lot of protected areas throughout the United States. So there was 492 protected areas, and they had 1.5 million hours of recordings from these areas. Wow. And they basically 1.5 million hours. Yeah. 
presumably they, they more than one. Away. <laughs> more, more than one recorder. <laughs> Either way, like, who's going through that? <clears throat> anyway, carry on. It's a lot of data. Uh, it's yeah. an impressive study. I guess that's why it was published in Science. Anyway, so they basically created a model to look at what the natural soundscape was and then worked out what is there above and beyond that which has been created by humans. And what they found was that 63% of these protected areas are twice as loud as they should be. So hmm. a way of thinking about that is that if normally you could hear a bird calling from 30 metres away, in fact you can only hear it calling from 15 metres away, mm. whether that's because of traffic noises or aeroplanes passing overhead or just people, you know, talking and doing things in so, these places. Uh, sorry, uh, you know, my background <coughs> always pops into these studies straight away. At what frequency... And was it mm. frequencies that were problematic for the native species? Yes. I think that's the only real question of, of merit in, yes. in that study. Yes, it was. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So they looked at this stuff really carefully. Yep. And they worked out exactly what was going on at different mm. frequencies mm. in terms of the natural sounds, the human sounds. Um, and 21% of the protected areas were 10 times as unnaturally loud as they wow. should be, which is pretty yeah. massive. So you think about now you're down to, you know, kind of at one and a half mm. metres, you can hear this bird that's calling at this distance away. And so they argued, because they did look really carefully about, at, at the frequencies that these sounds were at, that this is massively problematic. So this mm. means animals aren't hearing each other's mating calls, animals aren't able to hear prey, they aren't able to hear predators. Um, this is changing, has the potential to change species abundance, reproductive success behaviour, mm. you know, it's actually incredibly um, important that we realise that there's different forms of pollution yeah. out there. And, and there is scientific research that already shows <laughs> in other parts of the world that um, birds, as an example, that live in urban environments change their calls. Yep. So mm. we, we know so that they, they modify their behaviour. Yes. So. You yeah. think that the follow-up study to this would be around light pollution and because the argument here is the thing that we don't think about is that it's also affecting plants because mm. if the pollinators are being right. affected, yep. then the plants are being affected. Yeah. So there was a yeah. little bit of good news. They did found that in, I think it was about 30% of protected areas, they were actually um, acoustically intact still um, and they were much quieter than, a, than adjacent non-protected areas. So done well, protection does allow for this, what we want in terms mm. of, of um, quietness, but doesn't always work. Interesting mm. stuff. Mm. Dr. Ewan? I like to talk about scarring. So I've got a decent scar on emotional myself. Emotional or um, <laughs> physical? Uh, physical in this case. Because yeah. I've got emotional scars from working I, with Chris for I, so long. I think we've all got those. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> no, and more to come. <laughs> so I've got a decent a physical scar on my arm from a, when I broke my arm. But um, scarring's a big deal. So well, did the bone come out? I, no, I didn't. No, I just had to operate. But oh, okay. it's, it's yeah. a pretty hefty scar. And uh, But scarring's a big deal, obviously, for many people. Mm. Um People need um, surgery for a whole range of reasons. And for some people, it can be quite distressing to have really visible scars. Mm. And so there's a lot of research looking into how we could, you know, um, I guess do surgery and so forth that um, has less scarring involved. And so muscles, the humble muscle that, you know, sits around in the ocean and sticks to rocks and is very good at sticking to things. So I thought you meant I mean, yeah. our muscles. Yeah. yeah, no, no, five hours. Double S. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Double yeah. S muscle. Yeah. Mm. So they, they secrete these, um, this kind of sticky substance that sticks them onto the, the rocks, of course, so they don't get washed away by waves. And so some research has been looking at how to... Um, I guess stop this scarring process. The so scarring happens when basically you you break your skin, or, and then the collagen scaffolding essentially gets mm -hmm. broken down. And then mm. when it's healing, rather than healing the same way, it forms these sort of parallel bundles and a big kind of mess essentially, and that's what gives the scar. But you can get around that by applying what's called decorin. Um, which is a skin protein, but it's actually really hard to synthesize that. And so what this uh, group has, has done is taken some decorin, um, but also collagen binding mo molecule and the muscle secretion from the muscle, and they 
did an experiment with rats, so those that they obviously did um, actually open up wounds on, 8 millimetre wide wounds. We're talking about a serious wound, and those mm. that they didn't. And then they applied this treatment and then a control treatment where they just put the plastic film but without the treatment underneath it. Mm. And by day 11, 99% of wounds with the treatment had closed compared to 78% in the control mm. group. But more importantly, at day 28, the ones that had had this treatment with this mulligan, uh, sorry, with this uh, muscle secretion had a full recovery and no visible scarring. Wow. wow. And whereas the ones that um, didn't, of course, had scarring and didn't have um, quite as good healing. And so this is kind of, I guess, really promising. It's, bear in mind, it's only in rats, and rats are known to heal a lot better than uh, humans. So humans have quite tight skin. Rat skin's looser and it tends to heal a lot better than our skin does. So mm. you have to sort of take that mm. with a bit of caution. But I guess it's exciting. The other thing, too, is that not only did the skin heal well, but hair follicles grew back, sebaceous mm. glands, um, you know, really important components of your skin, which otherwise in scar tissue wouldn't come back, um, yeah, reformed. So it's really exciting, I guess, in terms of how mm. we might be able to treat scars. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we're talking in many cases about very severe scarring, too. I mean, not not the little cut you have on your no, arm. No, no. It yeah, comes yeah. a part of your history, but but scarring that's, you know, Permanently disfiguring. And exactly. Yeah, it's a very exactly. different game. Chris KP, we've got a couple of minutes to go. I hear uh, that's all you need. Yeah, I don't need a lot, I don't think. Um, there was a, a group of um, researchers in Oxford studying great tits. Um, and in <laughs> Sorry, particular... What? The birds. Notice um, who laughed first. Yeah. Doctor yeah. Jen. Because well, I knew yeah. it was coming, and I saw the look of glee on his face. Well, well, and what's interesting about this? Okay, what's interesting about this is that I was at an auction yesterday. Work with me here, and. You know, before they start taking bids, like they, the the spiel, you know, oh, it's yeah. got blah blah blah, it's got this, it's got that, and this auctioneer, in a, in a move that seems strangely desperate for early in the auction, made a point of saying, "The neighbourhood's great here, everyone's very friendly and affable." I'm like, "Well, that's not true," but also, really, anyway, turns out <laughs> that it turns out that great tits in amongst the, the the population, the males are very fussy about their neighbours. Mm. as in other tits in the area, but not just that they're there or whatever else, but that they have similar personalities. And so, so yes, so the females still, I mean, the males still compete for attention for, for mating rights, etc. but when it comes to picking a spot to actually establish the, you know, their, their space, they test out the area and they hang out with people like them, with, with tits like them, which really means you can be pretty loud and flamboyant and, and bouncy and aggressive, or you can be kind of chilled and calm. And they tend to form these really clear, bounded areas where there's one kind and another kind, and when they, if you put them into another area, they don't like it. They'll move to an area with similar <laughs> personalities. So at least at least amongst great tits, um, personality makes a difference just on to, uh, in terms of where you live, irrespective of anything else. There you go. There you go. So that explains how you've been treated lately at work. And uh, just not lately, like general. generally, yeah. <laughs> generally, yeah, it's been tough. Emotional scarring. <laughs> Emotional <clearly>. scarring, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're going to get you some muscles and you can it's rub okay. it on your Stop head. Stop rubbing muscles on me! Lather it on. <laughs> Lather it on too. Yeah. I think for emotional scarring, you'd have to eat the muscles. It's true. You? Well, that's, yeah. that's well, pleasure. You have to believe yeah. in the muscles. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You have to believe <laughs> in the power of the muscle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we ended on a high note. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> Thanks to Chris KB, of course. Oh, Thanks, my buddy. pleasure. Yeah, good to see you. Uh, Dr. Ewan, we will, uh, we'll t- we're going to talk more about that predator show. Because Looking that's forward to be it. A lot of fun. So if you're an apex predator and you're listening to this show, give me a yell. <laughs> Please come um, along. Because I would love to have a bear in the studio. <laughs>
As would I. I'll be saying goodbye to both of you then, because we won't be seeing you again. Oh, uh, yeah. Enjoy Do- your last show, guys. That would be fun. Uh, Dr. Jen, thanks so much, and uh, have a great Mother's Day. Thank you. I hope you um, are suitably spoiled by uh, Dr. Ewan here. I'm sure you, and if you find your kids. Um, yeah, hopefully I will. <laughs> they can do something for you too. Yes. You need them Happy anyway. Mother's Day, all the mums. Yeah. Queen mine. Uh, we're going to leave it there, folks. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It. Thank you so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. We have done a new show today, which is a bit different. So let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. You're listening to 3 R. Remember, science is everywhere and have a fantastic Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3 R. 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.